When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. talking to my mom and she was like would you be interested in working on this project it's a big one and it's complicated and you know I say that the reason I was able to do it is because I was incredibly naive I had no idea how much work it was going to be when I started I had not a clue this is Lucas St. Clair Lucas is the son of Roxanne Quimby one of the co-founders of Burt's Bees it was the fall of 2011 And for the last decade, Roxanne had been slowly purchasing a bunch of land adjacent to Mount Katata in the north woods of Maine. In all these parcels, they ended up creating a huge swath of land. The project she asked Lucas to work on, well, she wanted him to turn it into a national park. When you started working on this project, it sounds like you started getting involved in the politics of it pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Had you ever done anything like that before? No. I've always been interested in politics, but I had never talked to a member of Congress. I didn't know how the system worked. Okay, let's be honest. Right now, there are a lot of things that are competing for your attention. There's a lot of issues out there that are saying, me, 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 this is super important. And it's pretty overwhelming. I realize that. I feel that too. We started this series, Endangered Spaces, as a way to offer a deeper look in some of the active land battles and the history that brought them to this point. Because we care about the land. We also have another hope for this series as well. I understand that it can feel kind of like a relentless storm of bad news. And it makes me want to just hide. And frankly, just wake up in a few years. At times, I can even feel a little bit powerless I also believe that that's not the case. With this series, we want to bring you stories of people who might have been in a little bit over their heads. Maybe they too didn't think that they had enough time or enough skills or enough experience, but they stepped up out of their safety net in the familiarity of their lives they had been living and took on a new challenge in their own quirky, non-traditional ways. And they all, well, 
Everybody we've talked to, they're making a difference. Lucas St. Clair is definitely one of those people. Today, we travel to Northern Maine with producer Jen Altschul for the second episode of our Endangered Spaces series. The story about Lucas, about trying to establish a national park, and about how sometimes it's not really about the land, but about the community that calls that land home. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to The Dirtback Diaries. parents were back to Landers in the late 60s, early 70s, moved to northern Maine with a little cabin in the woods, and my twin sister and I were born up there. It was a pretty open, ranging childhood where we spent most of our time outside and a very simple lifestyle. We didn't have running water or electricity, and, and it was the greatest place to grow up. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, we could canoe and kayak and bike and hunt and fish, and it was just as good as it gets. The year after he graduated high school with the encouragement of an unconventional academic advisor, Lucas hiked the Appalachian Trail. And had, you know, like, my mind blown. You know, I was like, sort of mediocre high school student, did just as little as I needed to do to get by and long for being outside. And all of a sudden I strung this trip together and it was, I felt really proud of what I was capable of. And so it was then I was like, you know, I should try to do more of this. Lucas spent the next three and a half years working in kitchens to support his outdoor adventure habit. Eventually, he went to culinary school. When his mom made her ask, Lucas was living in Seattle with a wife and young daughter, working as a chef. Not exactly relevant experience for navigating the state and federal bureaucracies and local politics involved in adding land to the national park system. Within the next year, that would change. A couple of flights to Maine and D.C. escalated into something that felt more like commuting to work from coast to coast. And by 2012, Lucas and his family had relocated to Portland, Maine and had walked head-on into the conflict that surrounded the 87,500 acres of thick woods and meandering water that his mother had purchased. Roxanne had always dreamed of establishing a national park in northern Maine. She's the daughter of immigrants that had to flee Russia, moved to Shanghai, and then ultimately wound up in Massachusetts. Her grandparents ran a hot dog stand on Revere Beach, just outside of Boston. And Revere Beach was the first public beach in the United States. And it was just this amazing thing for her whole family to see, like, anyone can just walk onto the beach and access the ocean and it's available for everyone. Like, what an incredibly democratic thing to do. And I think she was just always taken by that concept. The most pure form of democracy is taking these land assets and letting everyone have an equal share in them. In 2003, it seemed as though the stars had aligned for Roxanne to realize her dream. 
A private equity firm in New York paid her $141.6 million for an 80% stake in Burt's Bees. And three parcels of land on the east side of Baxter State Park came onto the market. The majority of the land was sandwiched between Baxter, home of Maine's famous Mount Katahdin, and a 10-mile stretch of the East Fork of the Penobscot, a beautiful, wide, meandering river that alternates between formidable rapids and calm sections that more closely resemble ponds. The river, streams, and thick forests provide habitat for beaver, white-tailed deer, pine marten, bobcat, black bears, snowshoe hare, moose, porcupine, and the elusive Canadian lynx. And high points on the property offer spectacular views of Mount Katahdin. And that was really the pivotal moment when she was like, bought a majority stake in that land and said, okay, here it is. This would be the spot for the park. And all the pieces sort of fit in at that moment. But as Roxanne started to take the initial steps to create the park that would eventually be called Katahdin Woods and Waters, she was met with a level of resistance she hadn't anticipated. To me, the most confusing part of the whole situation surrounding Katahdin Woods and Waters is that a conflict exists at all. It seems as though Roxanne's decision to purchase land in the region and then open it up to public use would not only bring in tourism dollars, but would open up unprecedented access for the locals as well. To understand why contention exists, you have to understand the history of the North Woods of Maine, the 12 million acre region that encompasses Katahdin Woods and Waters and Baxter State Park. See this? This was from the log drives. They would put booms across. They probably had some kind of a boom or something to hold. Something that they used during the log drives. They had, they bored in here. I don't think they had a bridge across here. The vast majority of the North Woods of Maine are and have always been private property. Starting over two centuries ago, men would flock to the North Woods to spend the frigid winters cutting timber. The snow-covered earth and leafless deciduous trees made it easier to drag fallen logs into piles along the riverbanks where, come spring, they could float the timber toward ports downstream. Over the course of the 19th century, loggers sawed through most of the big and easy-to-access trees, and the industry shifted toward paper mills. The area around Mount Katahdin changed dramatically in the last years of the 19th century with the formation of the Great Northern Paper Company. The Great Northern would become, for a time, the biggest paper mill in the world. And the towns of Millinocket, East Millinocket, Patton, Sherman, Medway, Mount Chase, and Stacyville sprung up around it. These towns were created by a mill. The company attracted people there to work. In order to do that, they built houses. They built a water system, sewer system, provided jobs for everybody, built the schools, like provided uniforms for the football team. At its heyday in the 1970s and early 80s, the mill employed 5,000 people. Kids would get out of high school and get an entry-level position making over $60,000 a year in today's money. The mills owned the forest, ponds, and rivers outside of town. But unlike land owned by private timber companies out west, typically marked by no trespassing signs and gated roads, the resource extraction giants of the Northeast welcomed the locals into the woods to hunt, fish, ski, snowmobile, and camp, 
They even offered cheap, long-term leases on beautiful parcels of forest, where many families built beloved cabins or camps that they passed down through generations. And so essentially, it's this private 12 million acre forest that is treated as if it's public land. But it wasn't public in the eyes of anyone else except the people that lived close to it. Because if you look at a map, you're like, oh, that's all private land. And so not only did people have unfettered access to the whole thing, they didn't have to share it with anybody. I think that this was where the cabin was. I don't know what the cabin even looked like, but it was nice to save a couple of the buildings to use. In the 90s, things took a downward turn. The mills began to go under for a number of reasons. The mechanization of logging in combination with pressure to keep up with the timber industries in Canada and the Northwest led to overharvesting. Today, groves of virgin forest don't exist in the Northwoods, just large individual trees that loggers overlooked. More importantly, the demand for the type of pulp made from Maine's hardwoods has plummeted over the past 50 years. These mills were geared to make yellow pages. Like When I asked my daughter what she thinks a phone book is, she has no idea. And that is the reality. People aren't using phone books anymore. People aren't reading the newspaper anymore. I mean, people aren't reading paperback books anymore. In 2003, the Great Northern went bankrupt. And in 2008, the company locked its doors for good. Over the past decade, the towns have weathered the loss of their benevolent godfather. Populations have been cut in half, and the median age has doubled, as younger generations are forced to look elsewhere for opportunity. Driving through towns like Millinocket, you don't have to know the history to see that something has been lost. It's the storefronts that are closed. It's the houses that are empty, the lawns that are left unmowed. It's the parks that aren't kept and the playgrounds that are falling in and the basketball courts that are cracked and grass growing through them. And, you know, you start to look around and it looks like things have have been neglected for a while or there just aren't people there taking care of it or using it. It was in the depths of this depression that Roxanne began to acquire parcels of land from the defunct logging companies, which did not sit well with the locals. You know, I talked to a grandmother whose grandkids moved away and whose kids are gone, and they're just like, what happened? How come this all has fallen apart? And then they see someone like my mom or someone like me that they perceive to be from away and not, you know, they're like, we didn't grow up with you. And all of a sudden you come here when we're like in a bad spot. And so you must have something to do with it. There's likely a lot of truth to Lucas's words, but at least initially, Roxanne didn't do a whole lot to sway local opinion in her favor. The first thing she did was ban hunting and snowmobiling on her property. Then, she started making changes to the leases the locals had on the land. I think we were paying like $300 a year for the lease approximately, and it went up to 1500 for that year. This is Lou Ellis. Lou and her husband owned a grocery store in town, and once they retired, they leased the site on the east branch of the Penobscot. When Roxanne purchased the property, not only did she ask $1,500 to renew the lease, 
She asked for an additional 1500 to pay for taking down the camp in the future. So that was a $3,000 one-year financial request, and uh, it was only on a year-to-year basis. Before with the lumber companies, it was like a five-year lease. At that point, my husband was not doing particularly well, and he was headed for the nursing home, and it just didn't seem like it was a feasible thing that we could afford at that time. Lou and her husband gave up their lease when Roxanne hiked the price. They'd had their lease for eight years. The site was a, supposedly a site where Thoreau camped. It was just a perfect place. It was right before the Oxbow, and uh, it was great for fishing, for swimming, for wildlife. Will you tell me what your favorite thing was to do? To do, oh, to bike the 15 miles from Shin Pond. <sighs> I do miss it. To the bridge at the dam. <sighs> and then to kayak down to the camp. I didn't realize it was still bothering me. Despite how she felt about losing her camp, Lou was actually one of the locals who supported the idea of a national park from the very beginning. Other members of the community were not so forgiving at first. I was opposed to it, adamantly. You know, felt bad for the people that lost their camps. This is Terry Hill. As mean as we all took it for granted that Leaseland was going to be forever and ever. Terry and her husband have owned Shin Pond Village, a hotel, store, restaurant, and gas station that borders Roxanne's property for the past 35 years. Here's her son, Blaine. You know, those people were very upset, and you naturally were just upset for them, even though it didn't affect us directly. It was like, the right thing to do is you stand with those people because it was just the thing to do. It's a small town, small in that community. In addition to the changes Roxanne was making in regards to access, there was a lot of misinformation floating around about what a national park would mean. And neither Roxanne or anyone else was around to set the record straight. Here's Lucas. There was a lot of things that people were worried about that weren't real. For example, people thought that if the National Park Service got a foothold in the Katahdin region, that they would begin to just take people's land. Or people believed that it would harm the timber industry or that higher regulations on air quality around national parks would make it harder for a new mill to open. And that's not true. But a lot of people believed it. One of the most interesting parts of this story to me is that from the moment Roxanne purchased the plots, the land itself wasn't actually in any danger. And maybe it wasn't really even in danger before that. For an environment to face the threat of resource extraction, There has to be a viable market for those resources. And right now, northern Maine has a surplus of trees without a market. Really, the endangered space is in the rural communities that surround the land. The very communities who are pushing back against the park the most adamantly. By the time she called Lucas to ask for help, Roxanne was understandably frustrated. And she said the foundation will fund that work until... August 25th, 2016, the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service. If you don't get it done by then, I'm done. Like, I've been buying this land for and working on this project for, on August 25th, 2016, it'll be 19 years. I can't, I'm not going to work on this forever. And in the meantime, she feels, as, and she is, doing something very generous. And people are like, think she's public enemy number one. And she's like, that. it's just a bad feeling. 
Lucas had his work cut out for him. He had just over five years not only to dispel the misinformation circulating around and convince the locals that a national park would add a much-needed flow of cash into their parched economies. He also had five years to convince the federal government that Katahdin Woods and Waters deserved to be a part of the national park system. Ken Salazar gave us this advice, the Secretary of Interior back in the beginning of the Obama administration. He was like, if you're going to get this done, you need to think about the national park as if it was running for U.S. Senate. So imagine the things you'd have to do to win a Senate campaign. You'd have to have a campaign manager, and you'd have to have a communications director, and you'd have to do media and TV ads, radio ads, and a bunch of polling and focus groups and in-depth interviews, and you'd have to have spokespeople and messengers and independent messengers, and all of that would have to be working in sync to get someone elected for Senate or to create a national park. So Lucas assembled a team and started polling and holding focus groups in the Katahdin region. Started asking people questions like, there's this land here. If it became a national park, how would it benefit you? What could we do to make sure it did benefit you? I had 10,000 cups of coffee with people in northern Penobscot County. I put my cell phone number in the newspaper and said, if anyone has any questions at any time, call me. Those 10,000 cups of coffee paid off and local opinion began to come around. Here's Terry again. Lucas St. Clair reached out to us to meet with us personally, and it just all fell together. We started having more and more meetings from two to six to 12 people and really hashed out with Lucas what was going to work for us. Do you remember what Lucas said to you originally that changed your mind? He didn't say anything particular. It was the series of sitting down, talking to him. He really listened to us. Lucas quickly realized that they would never win local support for the park if they banned snowmobiling, hunting, and fishing entirely. So he began to mark off sections of the map that would allow hunting and motorized travel and others that wouldn't, something no other national park or monument has done before. Another breakthrough came when Roxanne's foundation, Elliottsville Plantation, agreed to donate the land along with a $40 million endowment to support the process of establishing and managing the park. For every federal dollar spent on a national park, tourists spend $10 in the towns that surround it. And in this case, taxpayers wouldn't even have to make the first $40 million of investments. The majority of locals came around to recognize the crucial economic boost the designation could offer. We understand the power that it has with the name and with the National Parks brand. This is Lindsay Hill Downing. Lindsay grew up here, and she and her husband now run her parents' business, the Mount Chase Lodge. We've worked in all other sorts of national parks, and we wouldn't have had those jobs if it weren't for those national parks. The business is where we gained all that experience would not have existed had it not been for the national park system. And we really wanted to create that same sort of feeling with this business. We want this national recognition that a national park brings. By the time Lucas and his team brought their request to Congress in 2015, the polls showed a 72% majority supported the national park. But a small, vocal minority continued to oppose the idea. 
three tiny towns that border Katahdin Woods and Waters held a vote and came out firmly against the designation. Maine's often volatile Republican Governor Paul LePage also loudly denounced the idea. There's nothing that he said where I'm like, oh yeah, well, he's got a point. His arguments are no one would want to visit because it's nothing but a bunch of mosquitoes. Or it's just a bunch of cutover land, it's not worthy of visitation. Or it's harming the forest products industry in a way that we can't recover from. Or the federal government isn't responsive to the needs of the local communities. The land should be managed by the state. Based on what looked, from afar, like a lot of local opposition, Congress deemed a national park too controversial and denied the request. But Lucas still had one more avenue to try before their August 2016 deadline. If, rather than try for a national park, they pushed for a national monument designation, they could bypass Congress entirely and would just have to convince the White House that the land was worthy of federal management. It's the path a lot of national parks have taken, major parks even, like Grand Teton, Grand Canyon, Bryce, Zion, and Olympic. Lucas and the team worked hard to get the attention of the Obama administration. And in the spring of 2016, the director of the Park Service paid a visit. 1,400 people turned up at the public meeting. 95% of them to show their support for the monument. And so they were looking and saying, all right, we're not hearing anything from the opposition. We're just hearing from all of these supporters. Far more supporters than were represented in the legislature or in all the towns that voted. And on August 24th, 2016, under the power of the 1906 Antiquities Act, Obama established Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. So we beat our deadline by a day. (laughs) Since the monument designation, both Lindsay and Matt say they've already seen over 30% growth in their businesses. Hotels, stores, and rental shops have begun to make expansions and investments. Kids like Lindsay and Blaine are moving back home to take over their parents' businesses. People realize that the monument isn't the solution to all of their economic troubles, but they see it as a step in the right direction. And probably more important than anything, it gives people hope. It's driving our investment thinking. We're expanding our lodging. This is Matt Polstein, the owner of New England Outdoor Center, adjacent to Roxanne's land. We're renovating a storefront downtown and opening up a store. It'll be called the Katahdin Woods and Water Shop. If we a year from now want to expand, I feel like we'll have that real opportunity to do so. Whereas two years ago, we didn't. If anything, we had a declining customer base, not a potential increase. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Welcome back again, Mr. Secretary. It's nice to uh have a chance to chat with you again. This is Maine Congresswoman Shelley Pingree speaking to Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke at the June 8th Department of the Interior budget hearing. So, Mr. Secretary, when we were uh, when you came before, we had a chance to talk a little bit about Katahdin Woods and Waters. I didn't know. I was kind of disappointed to find out that it was the next day that got added to the list. So the list. Um, The list of monuments established since 1996 that Secretary Zinke will reevaluate for legitimacy and due process between now and August. 
As Congresswoman Pingree mentioned, initially the Trump administration indicated that because the size of the park is less than 100,000 acres, Katahdin Woods and Waters was too small to make it onto the list. But then, the next day, there it was, next to the 26 other monuments up for reconsideration. I think it's safe to say that under any other administration, the story would have ended the day of the monument designation. The foundation Roxanne established would have worked with the National Park Service to post signs, improve roads, establish trails and parking areas, install picnic tables, outhouses, and a visitor center, and hire employees to manage the park. And they are doing all of those things. But this is not any other administration. In the months following President Trump's election, Governor LePage traveled to D.C. to personally ask the president to rescind the monument status. How much threat do you actually feel like this park is under right now? I feel like it's under threat. I also know there's a lot of contractual obligations that would make it legally impossible to do anything other than keep it as a national monument. Or you could turn it into a national park, but... Beyond that. But the threat is real. The threat of them trying is real. And the threat is affecting people in the Katahdin region who were making investments in their businesses, who were borrowing money from banks, who were planning on this growth and now are thinking the president wants to take these things away? You want to sell them off? You want to give them to the state? That's creating a lot of anxiety. It's incredibly unfortunate, both from the standpoint of dampening people's willingness or desire to invest and and from the standpoint of sort of rekindling or restarting adversarial relationships that really had been put to bed by the monument designation. Plenty of people that were opposed to it once it happened said, all right, let's make the best of it. And now some of those people are probably scratching their heads going, well, you know, did I jump too fast? You know, should I start opposing it again? In mid-June... Zingi did travel to Maine to meet with LePage and to tour the monument. Right now, he says he doesn't have any intention to shrink the size or rescind the designation. The monument isn't the easiest place to get to. The roads have no signs directing traffic to the entrance. Governor LePage won't allow for them to be posted. You only know that you found the park when you pass a small wooden sign in the NPS font. Once you pass that sign, there's little infrastructure. Old logging roads form a 14-mile scenic loop. More old logging roads offer access for mountain bikes and horses during the summer and groomed trails for snowmobiles and cross-country skis during the winter. A handful of hiking trails lead to special places just off of the road. Two of the cabins from the old camps have been cleaned up and, with a reservation, offer wooden bunks, stocked woodshed, and a cooking setup for those willing to hike, ride, or ski the few miles in. Like everything else in the park, the cabins are free. Beyond that, the monument has 17 primitive campgrounds, four lean-to shelters, a handful of picnic tables, and, as advertised, views of Mount Katahdin, and a lot of woods and water. On the drive into the monument from the southeast, it seems like two of every three houses are marked with a bright yellow no-park sign. 
I tried hard to talk to a local who opposes the park. One woman refused to talk to me because she works for her town office and didn't want her town labeled as anti-monument. One of the owners of a campsite and store claimed to be neutral, but wouldn't say much else and didn't want to be recorded. In one final effort, I stopped by a business owned by a couple who everyone says has been vocal in their opposition. They own a couple of gas pumps and a store that sells mostly fishing bait and ammo. I introduced myself to the woman behind the counter with short, tidy gray hair. The moment I said the word monument, she stiffened and cut me off. She told me they weren't for it, and she didn't have anything to say about it. I asked if she'd tell me why if I didn't record her. Nope. Then almost as an afterthought, she added, My husband would probably tell you what he thinks, but he'd probably tell you some things you don't want to hear. I told her I'd love to talk to him. He's out fishing, she told me. She didn't invite me to come back later. With all of the yellow signs skewered in front of people's houses along the road, not a single business I passed had a yellow no-park sign in the window. Maybe there's another explanation, but it's hard not to think that they know that they can't afford to lose paying customers by identifying themselves as against the monument. And since the other locals already know where they stand on the issue... It's hard not to think that the customers they don't want to turn away are out-of-towners, many of them drawn by the park itself. But in any place, especially a place where family traditions span across generations, you'll find people who resist any kind of change, even if on a rational level they understand the change could benefit them. What does strike me about this story is this. When I asked the locals what they loved most about the area, they didn't talk about the lush green forests or miles of snowmobile trails or the shimmering blue ponds and meandering rivers. And every one of them had the same answer. The community. People up here are just so much different than than anywhere else that I ever experienced. Super helpful, super nice. People have been very supportive of us coming in as a young business and you know, whether or not they agree with, with the National Monument or not, like everybody is just super kind and helpful. And we get phone calls every week from people just checking in to see how we're doing and if we need anything and they're going to Bangor, can I pick anything up for you? I think the community is special, you know, the people. And even though we have our differences, at the end of the day, they will come together to help anybody out. My husband and I have traveled all over the country and this is home and will always be home. While people hold strong opinions for and against the monument, the conflict has not turned vitriolic in the way it has somewhere like Bears Ears. My favorite thing that people would say, like, opposition, they'd be on the radio or whatever. And they, some people would say, yeah, you know, I hate the idea of the park. We don't want the feds coming in here. But, you know, I have to hand it to Lucas. He's, he's working really hard. <laughs> or he's a nice guy. It was always a nice kind of tip of the hat. That community, that's what Lucas and his team are really working to save. I gave a commencement address to a high school just up the road. And my last advice to them was a quote, I can't remember who, who said it, but essentially the quote is to be unique, don't follow somebody else's path, but make your own and work with all the people that you can work with. Look for patterns in that work because things will emerge and then work like hell. You know, it's, it's hard work and don't underestimate just how much work it takes.
comment period for the National Monuments on Zinke's list ends on Monday, July 10th. We have a link up on our website that makes it easy to speak up about the places that are important to you. The Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia, who are proud to present the Granted film series. The films tell the stories of people who Patagonia has supported in their fight to preserve or restore life-giving connections to their lands, cultures, and communities. Like an army veteran in rural Appalachia, battling to legalize the cultivation of industrial hemp. Learn more at Patagonia.com. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks. With mountain biking season in full swing, I bet you remember why you were thinking about replacing that old, janky bike rack. Visit kuatracks.com and shop their lineup of easy-to-use, well-built roof racks and hitch racks. Thanks, Kuat. And support comes from Boston Brewing, who has now successfully brewed their first batch of beer. Congrats, guys. The Richmond Tap House will open its doors in late July. Follow them on social media to keep tabs on their progress. Whether it's a donation, a story submission, or a note of thanks, you, our audience, truly keep the diaries thriving. To pledge your support and get your own Dirtbag Diaries theme song ringtone, go to dirtbagdiaries.com and click the pledge button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you so much to everyone who's contributed already. A huge thank you to Lucas St. Clair for all of his work on Katahdin Woods and Waters and for sharing his story. And thank you to Susan and Mark Adams for your incredible hospitality and to all of the Katahdin region locals who made the time to talk with me. Please visit friendsofkatahdinwoodsandwaters.org to plan your visit to their beautiful part of the world. Music today from Kai Engel, ADC Bicycle, Little Glass Men, Jason Shaw, MC Cullah, The IMG, Publish the Quest, Ken Christensen, Aiden Baker, and Fog Lake. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with permission from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website. This episode was produced by Becca Call, Fitzcahal, and me, Jen Alchel. I'm filling in for Fitz while he and Becca spend a week on the river. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah.